Are many Latinos anti-black? Latinos are anti-black and the whole world is anti-black. Welcome to episode 24 of the Brown and Black Podcast. My name is Jack Rico. And I'm Mike Sargent. And every week we take a look at race and pop culture through a brown and black lens. If you haven't had a chance, follow us on Brown Black Podcast on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. We'd love to connect with you. Before we begin, Mike, congratulations on your Forbes article. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, listen, and congratulations to you and your Forbes article. <laughs> We're in the same article. Which crazy. is amazing. It's crazy uh, how, how these things happen. The Brown and Black podcast uh, is on Forbes. If you haven't had a chance to check it out, just, you know, just put on uh, on Google search Brown and Black podcast Forbes. I'd like to give a shout out to Court Stroud, the journalist, the writer uh, who wrote it. He was very curious. He invited to his podcast. And, you know, it's one of those really great things to, to, to kind of get this breakthrough, Mike, because I think that. The problem with podcasting, number one, and I think it's the biggest issue in the industry, is discovery. And there is no Google search for podcasts. They're trying to create, someone's trying to create that. They're trying to create like a Netflix for podcasts. It's still, it's an inception. So to get an article in traditional media for a podcast that's about diversity, man, it just helps us so much kind of get the word out and make people aware of it. I mean, Guys, it's no secret. We're we're competing against mostly white podcasts. And the this the podcast the industry is essentially a white industry. So for us to get in, we have to impress the white people. And the idea is how can we go about it where we have the support and collaboration and contributions from our own people to support our show and our ideas and give back and and receive all at the same time. And dude, it's exciting. It's exciting to kind of get to this place. No, it's very exciting. It's also exciting, as you said, to, to, you know, to hopefully be discovered such a respected piece of media. But I want to talk about what you just said about the women. The women of color showed up in big ways. Of course, you saw uh, in Georgia what what uh, uh, black women have done. But the Latina women were the real heroines here, beating men yeah. in turnout in every state and voting for Biden-Harris at an average rate close to three to one. So, Mike, that was Eva Longoria on MSNBC. And uh, this was a cause for cringing on my end. Because I had heard already a Latina being a bit or making anti-black comments. And that was the last time that you and I spoke about Gina Rodriguez. And not too long ago was Camila Cabello, who was discovered for being essentially racist. And now you have the woman that was the face of the first night of the Democratic Convention, Eva Longoria, the one that many people have said, if there's ever a female Latina that could run for president, it's her. She's probably one of the most influential, if not the most powerful Latina in the United States in terms of media. And she holds a lot of political influence. Um, she is one of the top faces and voices of Latinx in this country. And as a Mexican-American that she is, as an actress, producer, um, she signifies a lot to a lot of people and she's a good woman. Um, but the problem is her comments on that segment and that portion weren't. And I think she misspoke, but, um, you know, I'm not going to talk too much about that at the second. We'll listen to what she meant by that. But Mike, this was a cringing moment because once again, we create an anti-black sentiment that I don't really think there's there amongst Latinos and blacks, at least at the Eva Longoria level. You tell me if I'm wrong, man. Well, I think I think a few things here. I think that the reason there was such a quick and swift backlash on, let's just say, black Twitter, if nothing else, about it uh, or on black social media is because of the history, because of the Gina Rodriguez's, because of the fact that I think... You know, honestly, I feel 
in many ways that I was, you know, sort of just blissfully unaware of anti-Black sentiment, not within our culture. I mean, there's, you know, there's, we can get into colorism within both communities, Black and Latino, but I really, and I've said this on the show before, I really did not realize there was this type of anti-Black sentiment among Latinos. Now we've seen it writ large as a result of of Trump and, and the divisiveness within the community. And, and even the Proud Boys have a, a, a Latino you know leader. But Black women have really been a big part of what is to come in terms of a new administration in this country and whatnot. So for Eva to get on and say that, I feel I understood her passion. I think you're right. I think she misspoke. And I think that what she was trying to say is, yeah, you know, we're, we are just like what you and I are doing here. We are important. We are part of the cultural landscape of America. Don't leave us out. But the way she phrased it dismissed black women and that was a huge faux pas. She went on Joy Reid the day after, and here's what she said um, about her apology announcement. I, I think like many of us, we're all exhausted after this election. And, um, you know, in my effort to celebrate Latina turnout, I diminished the importance of the black women's vote in this election. And what I said was wrong. And it, it is a fact that African-American women showed up in record numbers and brought us to victory. They saved this country. And uh, I recognize the harm that my words caused. If we've learned anything from this administration is that words matter. And so I take full responsibility for that mistake because um, I want everybody to know that we stand on the shoulders of black women who always show up. Black women have carried us for decades when it comes to civic engagement. And I get that there's a, a collective exhaustion and hurt at feeling erased yet again. And I contributed to that pain in a moment where black women should have been lifted up, not erased. And I I failed to do that. Look, Mike, there was a lot on the line for Eva Longoria here. She, I don't know how many brands pay her. She represents, you know, she is the spokesperson of many brands and she's about to direct like two movies for Universal Pictures there is a lot of money riding on Eva Longoria right now from a stock perspective, from a, a brand perspective, and just political influence. Like those three core pillars is kind of what makes Eva Longoria Eva Longoria. And all of those could have just been canceled if she didn't act right away. And one of the first things that she did was call someone by the name of Rosa Alicia Clemente, which we will be talking to in just a few minutes, called her up same day. I think she was a mess, probably having a meltdown at that moment with her whole team and going, what happened? How do we repair this? How do we fix this? And uh, she's going to tell us and describe exactly how that night went down Uh, What was said in that conversation between her and Eva and how they got together to kind of just fix this in some way. And then to talk to her a little bit more about anti-blacks amongst Latinos or the anti-black sentiment that many black people and black Twitter think that all Latinos some way deep down inside hold grudges about. And that's one of the things I wanted to talk to you before we go to Rosa, Mike, is do do you really think Eva Longoria is anti-black? Well, no, but you know, you're bringing up something as you're talking and something I, I realize you and I have never specifically had a conversation about, uh, and and I can't even say why, but no, I think Eva Longoria, it's a textbook apology. Like she gave, this is how you apologize. You you take full responsibility, you, you get it, you create context for what, how you made your mistake for people to understand and then you take full responsibility. And not only that, you know, you also then uh, make sure that you are clear where you stand. And in the process, I think she saved her career. Absolutely. Because part of the argument or part of what specifically black women uh, felt about it is Eva Longoria should know better. She knows how powerful TV is, how how powerful it is to be on a, a national, potentially international platform. And in a moment where black women are getting their due for her to say it the way she said, it's it, it, let's put it this way. It's hard to forgive 
it is something that you can get past. And I think that that's important too. Uh, well, two questions. One, do you, are you offended by the term white representing uh, or white presenting Latino? Are you offended by that term in any no. way? No. No, because I've been told that myself. They, they, right. White people have said that to me. Hey, uh, an agent one day said to me, you know what it is about you? You're white friendly. Hmm. And I was like, white friendly? They said you were white friendly. I was like, okay, I think it's a good thing to be friendly to the majority of the people that pay your bills and you know everything else. Look, I'm not one of those... I'm willing to work with white people. I, I think the problem is, is that amongst Latinos and blacks, we feel that whenever we work within a white circle at a job, at a, at a company, odds are is that we're not going to reach the heights of that company because those are reserved for their friends and the people that they feel comfortable with culturally. You know, dude, sometimes when you're from the hood and you walk into a elitist company and, you know, it's a great breakthrough for you, but your accent gives you away, you know, the way you behave, your mannerisms give you away. And we know that that's not wrong. That's not a crime. But culturally in the corporate business, that is a bit of a cultural crime, Mike, where they're like, ooh, you just went too like ethnic on me or you just went too urban on me. And you know what? I never grew up on that. I don't get it. You and I are never going to really hang out. Maybe my personality just isn't for everyone and that's okay. So to me, for me to hear, hey, you're white friendly, I'm like, look, I take that as a badge of honor that I can code switch at that level so good that I can hang out in any type of arena, plaza, group, circle without being the guy that is the guy that stands out. Well, I, I can relate to that. Obviously, you know, as a film critic, you know, doing NPR uh, and and doing Fox Business News, you know, I would kid and say I was bipartisan film critic. But as we've spoken about on the show, I've always been that guy that, you know, I guess maybe seemingly non-threatening. Uh, and a lot of, I was, you know, a starter black friend, but uh, the other thing, <laughs> the other thing, I'm curious if you have faced this yourself, because this kind of gets to the core of, uh, a few things here without getting deep into colorism and, but lay it on me. I have Afro Latino friends who have told me they do not trust white presenting Latinos, no matter what they do not trust. So that's me. That would be me. I, I, that would be you. And that I'm thinking, would be me. <laughs> so that, 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 <laughs> yeah, I, I'm the white presenting Latino. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering. Listen, I've never you, committed a crime think- to, to, to your friends. Let me talk to your friends. I've never committed a crime outside of trying to fit in somewhere. You've been to the party, guys, where you're not welcomed. Right. And you feel like shit and don't lie about it because you know you've gone through that. So what's the other way of going about it? Trying to fit in and trying to be the best you can be. Listen, to some extent, Mike, you represent a culture when you walk into a another culture. Absolutely. You're representing them. And if you put up a really good demeanor, if the experience is pleasant and, and memorable, I don't know why that's hate for the people that see you as a white presenting Latino. I think two things. A, they can't do it. So they hate. They can't code switch like that. So they hate. B, they just love being themselves and anybody that's not like them go to hell. I find that to be two very wrong ways of looking at the situation. I will not apologize for that. You know, that's kind of who I am. But I'm like that when I hang out with my black friends, with my Latino friends, with old people, with gay people, with just women. You've been in those parties where you go with your wife and everybody's a woman and you're like the only guy there. You adapt. It's cold, cold switching. It's being a part of the energy of the moment. I, and I actually think it's one of the best social skills I have. And it's what's gotten me to where I am. 
Well, I had to ask you. I'm, <laughs> I'm curious as if you've ever, you know, if you've ever faced that that prejudice. I, I mean, I remember. I've never faced it, but you know, okay. obviously you're, now you're, you're telling me that there are people that are like that. No, there are definitely people like that, and I mean, I've gotten, you know, from my own community, I, I get a vivid memories of being young and being told, "Oh, yo, you talk like a white guy. Why you sound white? Why are you trying to sound white? Why are you trying to sound white?" I, I used to get that. And, you know, eventually I had an answer for that. And and my answer for that was, I said, well, I know lots of white people that don't sound anything like me. But what I think you're saying is that I sound intelligent. So if to you to sound white is to, 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 to sound intelligent is to sound white, then who's really been brainwashed? They just think you're a sellout. They think you're a sellout. You sold out to the white culture. You sold out to the white executives. Well, bro, I don't see where's it like check? that. That's where's not the check? that's not the way you think about it. You don't go, hey man, I need to cater and and, and like rub shoulders with the white guys so they can love me. Uh, no one the, fucking thinks like that. Don't, 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 stop right there. What? Yes, that some Herman Cain, uh, you know that the the prosecutor down. But in, maybe uh, Herman Cain is just Herman Cain, and that's no, how Herman Cain no, wants to be. No. Look, I have a problem. Here's what I have a problem. No one can say, you know. Jack's a white presenting Latino. He sold out to the white culture. Uh, he wants to be white. He's a white washed Latino, Jack Rico, because he uh, white people like him. He's on Consumer 101 in England. Yeah, but then at the same exact time, I'm on Telemundo doing the same show in Spanish, being bilingual, being bicultural, showing the two skills that I have that I've developed for years to try and fit into both markets because I am not one person. I am the duality of two cultures. I am American. I am Latino, in particular from Colombia. And so to express that, Mike, the canvas is media. Yo puedo hacer todo este podcast en español y nadie va a decirme lo contrario. I mean, that's the beauty of it. You can speak Spanish, you can speak English, you can be in a Latino group in Miami, you can be one, you know, in New England, in Boston. It's cool to actually express yourself like that. Not everyone can. So in regards to the issue that Jack and I have been discussing, we reached out to Rosa Alicia Clemente. She's a journalist, a political commentator, and a scholar activist who has served as Eva's advisor throughout this entire ordeal. And I'd say that's no small feat, considering who Eva is and considering how things are today. Joining us now is Rosa Alicia Clemente, a 2008 United States vice presidential candidate, journalist, political commentator, and scholar activist, and an influential voice of Latinos in this country. Thanks, Rosa, for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you for being here. All right, so Rosa, I want to ask you, uh, first of all, I, I watched uh, your response on you know that first night and what you posted uh, on Instagram with, with about Eva Langoria and her comments, but it brings up, as Jack said, the larger issue. It's much, much more than Eva Langoria. And the way I want to frame this question is what I think is most important, I want to hear your thoughts on context. You know, there is a context to why uh, African-Americans are so quick to, to feel uh, they're being put down, especially African-American women. There's a context to uh, the animosity between brown and, and black folks, unfortunately. Uh, and there's a historical context to, to where we are in the society and why are we acting the way they, we are. So I want to get from you, every time something like this happens, I think the thing that has to happen in reaction is to give things context. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, well, first with the um, comments that uh, Eva Longoria had made, it's funny because I, I actually don't ever watch MSNBC or CNN and I just happen to be cleaning. So when I heard it, I was like, this is not good. <laughs> you know, I was like, uh -huh, no, you know, and, um, yeah, I did the, the IG live. I mean, I think one of the things, too, was that I knew she would end up seeing it because we have really good friend in com common, Carmen Perez, one of the founders of the Women's March and now the executive director of, uh, for a while of the Justice League, the Gathering for Justice. So I, I already had seen tweets like 
12 of them. And I called Carmen and I was like, yo, you need to look at this because um, when Eva was on, she was um, the banner under her said she said weather, which is a digital organizing um, collective that Carmen and then this other sister, Monica Ramirez, um, who uh, it works with the Farm Workers Alliance, but was really instrumental in, um, it'll be three years ago this January, her and Tarana Burke and bringing me and five other activists to the Golden Globes um, and, and beginning to work with some a lot of the actresses, African-American, Latino, Latina actresses, you know. So, you know, I was like, look, I'm going to do what I'm going to do, but you need to, like, probably try to reach out. And she did, because by the time I had finished the first one, which was about 35 minutes, I got the email from Eva, like, can you call me? So we talked. And, you know, I know people's hearts. I've been in this enough to know that, like, she was, first she was like, I fucked up. And now that I'm re-watching it, I'm like, oh, I see. And she said, what, what she had meant to say, this is what she says, she had meant to say that the real heroines are Latina women because 30% of Latino men did vote for Trump. When I looked at it again, I see her saying that, but the interview was almost over. So I was like, well, whatever, it's been said, you know, um, I, I just want to tell you I did an IG live and, you know, we should just all get together tomorrow, the She Sep where the crowd, all four of those sisters, and then me and um, my, my sister who does digital communications. So that's how I went down. And then yesterday morning, yeah, I think it was yesterday morning, we all had a, a really good talk, like almost two hours. And then last night, Ava went on Joy Reid. Joy mm-hmm. didn't give her enough time to talk about it, but she she did address it. So all of that being said is really, I think why that video and then the one subsequently where Eva had already sent me like the statement that she was going to put up. The second one, even people were like, yo, I'm not feeling that. Like this always happens. You know, it's like Gina Rodriguez, all the Latina actresses. And I was like, no, like Gina Rodriguez is on a whole nother level. Like, <laughs> like what is her all? What is her whole other level that differentiates well, never Gina be- from Eva? Because Gina has consistently made anti-black comments, whether it was, we need a Latino Black Panther as opposed to being like, yo, that Black Panther movie, Ryan represented all of us. We're black, brown, whatever. If we're not white, that, like that movie was for us. You know, she, she had mouthed the words um, of her hip hop song where the N-word was saying she said it and other things, right? So with Eva, I... I only met Eva at the Golden Globes three years ago, but because Carmen and Monica work with her, I'm like, yo, she's never really said anything anti-black, you know? And the minute she was called on it, she responded. Then she responded again. Then she went on Joy Reid. And I just actually got off the phone with her right now. And I was like, yo, we should do an Instagram live. And she's like, yeah, let's do that. But what she said in the last email she sent us was, she was just grateful for the call out and the call in. And that she's really realized in particularly like black and Afro Latino women, uh, also part of the women that voted for Biden and Harris, but also there's no really representation of us in Hollywood, except for um, Rosario Dawson and probably Rosie Perez. And then themselves have faced a lot of backlash because they, especially Rosario Dawson, who does identify as Afro-Latina, right? So that's the whole background to that. I'm the type of person in movement space, if we ask people to take accountability, they do, and then we ask them for actions, and that will be happening. We're going to have a series of conversations just on Afro-Black, Latino, Latina, Latinx identity. We are also very clear that at this moment, we have to be very um, in solidarity with each other, whatever our way to freedom looks like, because we still have to deal with 70 days of the maniac in office who's having a temper tantrum every day, and it's going to manifest real ugly. Um, of course, people are going to be in the streets. The police are going to push back even harder. And that, you know, at this moment, we, we're trying to stay alive. Because I, I told all of them, this is important to talk about. Yes, let's address it. But we need to be like, why are these white supremacists real quiet right now? Because they planning something real big. 
they already said it. They've been, they've done it. They, they did it by killing protesters. They did it by trying to, um, they were, this, these two men came from Virginia to the Philadelphia convention center while they were counting the ballots and they were going to go in there and kill the poll workers. I was like, yo, these people are real quiet right now. So this is important because for me, identity informs my entire politics. And it is important like I, to wrap it all up on the accountability. And when we get it, I think sometimes in movement, we're so used to people not being accountable or continue to make excuses that when somebody is accountable, we kind of don't believe it. Right. Accountability, restore the harm and recognize that there was harm made. Are many Latinos anti-black? Latinos are anti-black and the whole world is anti-black. Clarence Thomas is anti-black, you know, like (laughs) Condoleezza Rice is anti-black, you know. And for me, we always talk about the system of white supremacy. But when we're doing the work around anti-blackness, and I said this 20 years ago in my, one of my articles, the whole world's anti-black. The problem, what happens in the United States is that we have a lot of mechanisms to try to address that. Plus, we have a quarter of, quote, Latino people that do identify as black in this country. Um, and we're never in any discussions on race. Um, we're, we're marginalized in any discussion on, quote, Latino, Latina, Latinx. Even using those words without saying black or Afro erases us. Dog whistle politics. Well, no, I don't think it's dog whistle. But it, I think what it what it really is is that there's not an understanding of basically the African slave trade. So when you talk to a lot of people, everybody can agree, obviously, that Africans were stolen 60, 70, 80 million million for um, slavery throughout the world. Most people think those Africans ended up in the United States. Only 350,000 of them did. So where were the other 60 million taken to? Latin America, Central America. Brazil, Peru, Mexico. Mexico, You know, and the Caribbean, every every island. So, and then we don't teach people like 125 Afro-Brazilians live in Brazil and deal with militarized police and state violence at the amounts that people here couldn't handle and take it the way um, that the Afro-Brazilian community is treated. So we don't learn that in school, and we don't even really learn it in college unless you're in Black studies or unless you see it. With that, it's also because every discussion on race, especially on mainstream media and most, quote, progressive left white media, not within black and brown media, never have us at the table. When we're not taught about that um, and what, you know, why we call it the middle passage and the slave trade and that it happened for 400 years. Then in the United States, like I said, the binary of racial discussions are usually like African-American, European-American. It's not like you ever see Ethiopians or Nigerians, Jamaicans, Haitians. You never see us, you know, and then, of course, Afro, Latino, uh, Caribbean folks. You never see us in racial discussions. And in movement spaces, the same thing continues to happen, even though there's a whole new generation now, particularly of Afro, Black, Latina women that have been throwing it down for the last five years, you know. And um, obviously, I know that because in my generation, I, I am the leading scholar on this, but I've also been the leading movement person on this. Doesn't mean that there aren't mad other Afro, Latina um sisters and brothers and non-binary folks doing this. It's just, I've been doing this since I identified as a yeah. black Puerto Rican um, in 1995, you know, and that comes from my, my college years and my experiences there that woke me up to the history. And then I often think the animosity thing gets put within a framework of what goes to a community, you know, like what are the resources given to a community? So, we just have to have a better better um, comprehension of like within white supremacy, we all suffer under the system of it, whether we're Mexican, Jamaican, African-American, Puerto Rican, wherever we are. Geographically, things are different. 
relationships with African-American people and Puerto Rican people in the East Coast and in Illinois, particularly Chicago, are very different than Puerto Ricans and Cubans in Florida, very different from Texas, where they still use the word Hispanic, you know? Um, so it's also geographically where you're situated. Uh, and, and even Minneapolis and Pennsylvania. And people don't know how many Boricuas are in Minneapolis or Pennsylvania. So that kind of stuff, because at the end of the day, every time there is a discussion around our people, for lack of a better term, for, for Latina, Latino, Latinx people, Afro-Black, we don't even have demographic data because we, there's no, the census still to this day doesn't have a category that would include me or like my daughter. So there's not like, you can't look at the hardcore numbers and be like, oh, word, a quarter of, of, of Latino people in this country identify as black. And that was from the Pew Research Center, and that was in 2014. There hasn't been an update to that in six years. So I bet you if there's an update, it would be even exponentially uh, more numbers just because the number of young people um, that have really um, found their identity and claim it. So the animosity thing also disregards history. So if we're looking at the Black Power, Brown Power era movement, 1968 to the mid-70s. You have Fred Hampton in Chicago who started the Rainbow Coalition, who met Chacha Jimenez, who was leading the gang, the Young Lords, turned it into the Young Lords Party, the American Indian Movement whether underground or white, anti-imperialist, Black Liberation Army. So even in movement and organizing spaces, people always stop talking, like with civil rights, and then what happened under Ronald Reagan. Well, there's a whole 15-year gap there. And what happened to most of those leaders is they were either assassinated, incarcerated, or still incarcerated as political prisoners, including David Gilbert, who's white, but was part of the reason Asada Shakur was free and sent to Cuba. So, you know, you can't, people don't understand Arturo Schomburg. Afro-Latino, yeah. Yeah, well, he was ex exiled from Puerto Rico for fighting for Puerto Rico to be free, which is why he came to, to New York and was part of the Harlem Renaissance and wrote a seminal article, The Negro Digs Up His Past, where he's like, until we know where we came from, we don't know where we're going. Marcus Garvey, Pan-Africanism. Puerto Ricans and Mexicanos have been part of that history. And I mean, I know you're perhaps going to have to edit this, but even the Brown Boys' Board of Education, you know, ruling in, the, in 1954, 50, yeah, 54, the precursor and why there was a precedent on that was, an, was a Mexican family in Texas who had moved into a better neighborhood so the so that they, their daughter could go to the public school. And when the, they went to enroll her, they said, no, this is an all-white school. The public school for Mexicans is down. They filed a lawsuit and won. That was the precedent to Brown versus Board. So then you're like, right. And also, Mexican men and women were lynched in the Southwest. There are a number of research projects and books in the making right now about that. So I'm like, yeah, there's animosity because that's what white supremacy wants to do. <laughs> it wants to divide and conquer. It don't want to see us with a Puerto Rican, RBG flag, Colombian, and every flag. There's no protest you ever go to where there's not a Boricua and a Mexicano flag, period. So all of these things then create the atmosphere of also we have to root out anti-blackness, but the systemic problem is always white supremacy. Wow, wow, all right, I, you know, love you, Rosa. Two questions, uh, I'll combine two questions. I'm, su I'm sure you're familiar with uh, Freer's Pedagogy of the Oppressed. So I wanna know how you feel that plays in, uh, but also education, you know, just knowing certain things, just having even a basic knowledge of history. You know, there, there are a lot of people who voted for Trump because we live in an age that is obliterated reality uh, and everything is media. And, and since there's so much misinformation, you just kind of pick and choose what you wanted to believe. So what are your thoughts on how important it is just to, to educate yourself? As is, is maybe banal as that sounds, 
to to have any understanding of where somebody's coming from. It, I mean, it, it starts, you know, from from pre-K all the way through. If you go from pre-K to college or pre-K and finish high school, pre-K to a PhD program, all these curriculums still are Eurocentric. Um, there's been battles fought, like in Texas, their new history textbooks can't teach right. about like Hillary Clinton or Cesar Chavez. Arizona um, banned the teaching of Cesar Chavez, you know. Uh, there's still not every public education system in the country, um, well, at least in New York City, is the most segregated school system to this day. Um, there's no like African American. Well, there is studies. the 1776 uh, patriotic studies. Yeah. You know, oh yeah, the commission. Gonna... Yeah. So from that, from any type of schooling experience, and even through college, right? Because What's even happening right now in the academy as these campuses have to figure out, are we going to do this for another year? Some are going to fold and some are making huge budget cuts. And some of the first budget cuts is they're trying to cut black studies and Latino studies, Chicano studies, critical race studies, you know, um, kind of things. So we're just not taught the reality of even America, <laughs> you know, like we're just not. So, I mean, and part of that is that schooling is also a socialization project of like, you go through this to get a job, you know? So for me, I, my personal experience was until I went to college, I didn't even really know why Puerto Ricans were American citizens. Like I didn't even know we were a colony. And I grew up in a very Puerto Rican, Boricua to the death type of family. You know, so when I went to college, I was like, what? And I would ask my dad, he's like, you know, we don't talk about some of those things. And part of it is because the independista movement in Puerto Rico, but what the United States has done in Puerto Rico is either assassinated, imprisoned, or sterilized our people. So then that means I'm not, we're not unique to Dominicans who had to suffer under a dictator through Hijo who was part of the Haitian massacre. Why don't Haitians and Dominicans get along? Why do they get along? All this stuff, there is really no context to it in a schooling experience until you go to college. And then in college, you have to make the purposeful choice to like intro to black studies <laughs> or you know civil rights class and all of that, not in the literature. But I will say in the last five years, with people like Elizabeth Acevedo and Jose Ordor and all these young Latino writers that um, also censor themselves as Afro or Black, you know, I, I now I'm like, wait, I could get any book for my niece and nephew now, like if they're not going to learn it in, in school. Um, and then I often tell like folks, like white people also don't get told the real history of how they were abolitionists. You're never going to read about like Laura Whitehorn, Marilyn Buck, or David Gilbert in any school setting who are political, who are white political prisoners who literally gave up their freedom for black liberation back in the early 70s. So I'm like, imagine if you knew all that. Imagine just the, the nature of how young people, our young people, would see themselves. But what the best thing that has happened in the last six years is Black Lives Matter and that Black Lives Matter has children like my daughter, who's 15 and younger people where we as movement families have been like, no, we got to take our kids on the street. They got to see this. So, you know, we're raising them as movement babies. And most people, unfortunately, still don't have that experience unless, again, they go to college or they get. Um, an incident happens in their life on racism because usually most of us don't grow up in a movement family. That's a taxi. I'm sorry. Movement family. And most people get involved in movement and organizing because something has happened to them. Some form of state violence or they're friends. And then they're like, oh, right. They're killing black men out here like every day. Little state. None of that is taught. So it becomes up to all of the ethnic studies departments, all the professors like me in Africana studies, Pan-African studies, and then really encouraging, like I encourage anytime I teach, I, I'm, I tell my students the first day, you're here to be an organizer. If not, you don't, you know, you don't have to be in this class. But my hmm. job is to make sure you're an organizer and can also write well and critically debate. 
That's true. The critically yeah. th- critical thinking, I think, is something that we lack in uh, definitely in, in in our schools, and I think that that needs to be developed a lot more. Yeah, I think that going back to the Eva Longoria thing and why she did this and why Gina Rodriguez do, do these and a lot of Latinos do these is because there's a sense of invisibility that we cannot tolerate anymore. I mean, we're I think what happens are two things, and this is all subconscious that starts bubbling up to the mouth, and it's this. The, the the talk and the conversations in this country on race are binary. They're white and they're black. But we're the largest ethnic minority in this country with 60 million people. And that can also not be ignored. And John Agazamo and many other people, advocates have said, if we are the largest ethnic minority in this country, we have a damn voice. Yet our voice is not heard in politics. It's not heard in the press. If you look at the morning shows, if you look at most media, we are invisible. Can you clarify exactly these psychological, cultural, rooted, deep feelings of self-hate, anti-black subconscious feelings that we might have of being excluded and invisible out of all the conversations in this country? Yeah, I mean, so for me, like first, black people are excluded from the conversation because the only real time we see like black political pundits is during our election or if a racial incident pops up. So you, you know, like when Mark Lamont was on, on CNN, right. <laughs> they got rid of him cause he made a speech at the United nations about Palestinian rights. I remember that. We would only see Mark during discussions around police brutality. Well, Mark could also be in discussions on public education and and so many people who are um, pundits um, within the African-American community, Latino community, right? They're only always asked about race as opposed like you can be talking about the stock market as well as infrastructure and all these other things. Um, so, and I, I, I believe that still what is the true African-American political experience in ours is never going to be on mainstream TV. It's just like, that's what it is, you know? So that's why luckily we have the means now for all of us to do our own type of media, which is the most critical piece at this moment. And I mean, look, I, I've never gotten as many views. And part of it too was because Tamika Mallory um, who's another sister in struggle with me was like, yo, did you post something? I'm like, yeah. She's like, I'm about to post it now. And that's when it started like really, really blowing up. So for a while I'd been like, I, I, I started doing a show. I'm going to bring it back. I'm going to like reconstitute it. All of this, this is going to be in conjunction with like she's up weather and, and some other forces. Right. Um, so first, you know, we keep creating our own. Second, I am past in my life at least with appealing to the oppressor. Like I really don't give a fuck no more. Like I'm not I'm not doing this shit for white people. I'm not in that gaze, all of that. I'm not there for that. Which means that once we have this politic, we know we're not we're gonna be quote mainstream, whatever that is, you know, because to me, podcasts and what everybody else doing is what I'm always listening to or watching anyway. And we can't fall into that trap of competition. What we really should be saying is like, I tell students, if you live in, if you live in Philadelphia and Temple University is still predominantly white, what is that saying about the people who are running the college? There should be no predominantly white institutions in this country. We are the majority, period. So... I think the conversations that people have around, like, we're here, we exist, we're the largest minority. Like, first, I don't use the word minority. Like, we're the largest majority at this point in this country. Um, And that is putting the fear of whatever into white folks, which is why they're about to wall out. Because to them, they're, like, literally losing America. To us, we're, like, we're up in here critiquing it every day because look at all the state violence the violence of ICE detention, ripping families apart, the, the colonial violence in Puerto Rico, the, the, the violence by police, by, by budgets, all of that exists. And it, it, when you look at the numbers demographically, it doesn't skew that much higher. African-American, Latino people, we don't even have collective wealth in this country. But I would caution around like the John Leguizamos and them. 
Because when you do see Latinos, they're all white passing Latinos. Whatever they've done has ingratiated themselves into the white mainstream. So John Leguizamo to me is like not the person who should ever be representative of us. He still calls us Latin. I'm like, dude, that's a language. Like, what do you, what's a Latin? Part of it too is that there's a belief that of all these 65 million people, we're united in some way and we're the biggest numbers, that that has power. Visibility in numbers don't mean power. That's exactly where we're headed in this country. A majority people of color country by a minority white community, but also the 1% of capitalism. So for me, like John Leguizamo and Lin-Manuel Miranda and all of them, who also support policies that hurt Puerto Rico, like I'm not looking at you for no answer, dude. You don't even know the politics of stuff. You just say you want to be represented. What does that mean? You want to be in more movies that don't talk about the breadth of our culture? You want to do more comedy specials? I don't know what that means. What I do know is... The people usually representing Latinos, Afro-Latinos, or not at all, Latino, Latino, Latinx, are all Hollywood people. To make it even clear, when Ice Cube, 50 Cent, Puff Daddy, come, Little Wayne, they come out at the last minute, right, to <clears throat> whatever, to align themselves with Trump. We spent two days like, these dudes are canceled, which everybody was right. Because you, you chose to side with a white supremacist. Like, you can't come back from that, basically. And um, there was so much focus. And at one point, I was like, rappers aren't political leaders. I can't rap. <laughs> I'm a political commentator. Why are you trying to do politics as a rapper? And then also, in a very misogynistic way, because all four of them were, all, were talking about how there's no movement and agendas. I've been in the movement for so long. There's like 5,000 Black agendas and Latino agendas all online. Like, no, y'all did not want to go to the movement people who now are mostly women or trans and queer folks because of your own patriarchy and misogyny. And so Hollywood embraces a John Leguizamo, Lin-Manuel Miranda, um, you know, and, and other folks. And it's like, no, where are the movement people? Where are the journalists? Where, why is Maria Hinojosa don't even have her own show on MSNBC? I mean, she's really, for me, the foremost journalist, her, you know, for us, that has a huge platform. So that's why we just got to do, that's what Malcolm really talked about. First, like, you got to root out the internalized oppression. Richie Perez taught us when the young lawyer sat he always talk about bello malo, bello bueno, good hair, bad hair, that we have to root that out, you know, consistently, you know, and then we have to admit like, yo, some of my family's anti-black. Now, at my juncture in my, my, in my life, I don't even, I don't talk to my, my family anymore like that. Not my mom, my dad, my sister, bro, my larger family. I'm like, you voting for Trump? I'm not even trying to see you. Like, I'll see you at the, unfortunately, the next funeral since we have such a big family. But I've been cut off myself from, like, a lot of my cousins and that because they refuse to stop being anti-Black. I was like, I ain't trying to be around this. Like, I'm too old to be like, you shouldn't be saying that. Like, I'm just like, I don't have time for that. And it means if I don't talk to people in my family, I don't talk to people in my family. It is what it is. But um, they're not our authorities, you know, and actually on the Lin-Manuel Miranda, he's actually the worst. He, he, he was there when PROMESA was signed. He testified for PROMESA, which put Puerto Rico into this untenable debt. He's doing this like thing now with um, George Clooney around um, whatever, one of the big coffee conglomerates, as opposed to being like, you know, there's a coffee farmer right next to you that just needs money to like rebuild their farm right now and you're working with Nespresso. He he took Hamilton of Puerto Rico when the young Puerto Ricans were like, yo, don't bring that play over here. Don't bring that to the university. We can't even right now afford to go in there. So then how has he now become the expert on everything Puerto Rico? Now him and his dad are trying to push the statehood. So that was very Puerto Rican centered, but the whole thing is like, these are not our leaders. 
You know, we have to stop looking at these Hollywood folks as the people leading us. And I think that's what's different with Eva and America Ferrera and like Kerry Washington, Gabrielle Union, that they've actually embraced movements and for the most part use their platform to uplift particularly black and Latino women, you know? Um, and I think that's what, yeah, I'm sorry. And I think that's what hurt a little bit when Ava said that because people do know, especially black women, that she was out there also with them in solidarity with them. And that's what she probably would have, should have said, right? That's it for this 24th episode of Brown and Black. Thank you, Rosa Clemente, for being on the show. And thank you guys for listening. If you would like to support this podcast, please subscribe to our show and leave a review. Your help will allow us to be heard by many more people. Again, we have a brand new phone number if you'd like to reach out to us. It's 949-891-2446. That's 949-891-2446. Let us know how you feel about anti-blackness. Are Latinos or all Latinos anti-black? Leave us a message. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, have a great week, and we'll see you next week on another episode of Brown and Black. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ready to turn your best ideas into a thriving online business? Introducing Shopify, your no excuses business partner. You might not realize, but our podcast, More Than Mammies, it's a business. And we started it, of course, to talk about maternity, not to become an e-commerce expert. So yeah, we needed some help selling our merch and getting our store up and running. Another sale. Shopify is a commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. No matter if you are a garage entrepreneur or a big business, Shopify is the only tool you need to start and grow your business without the struggle. With Shopify single dashboard, you can manage orders, shipping, and payments from anywhere, giving you the insights you need whatever you are. Sign up for $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash sonoro or lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash sonoro to take your business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash sonoro. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.